0: listening to the barcode podcast with your host chris glandon serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser let's hit the bar and grab a drink hey tony what's up man this is my buddy pete i thought i'd bring him into barcode to check it out pete this is the infamous tony
1: the bartender yo what's going on tony pete nice to meet you What are you fellas drinking tonight? I'll just take a cold one. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, you got it.
2: Thanks, man. Dude, I can't believe I just met the legendary Tony the bartender, and he slid me a beer.
1: Legendary? Uh, I don't know about that, but I'll tell you what I do know. If you're into cybersecurity hardcore like these other regular ones around here are, this is the place for you. Only the top security professionals know how to find us. For instance, this hardware hacker from Portland, Oregon just showed up, claimed to have engineered an electronic compass that led him directly to this precise location. Get out of here. Yeah, and he doesn't even drink alcohol. So I hooked him up with a killer mocktail. We call it the kombucha mule. If you've ever had one, it's really easy to make. Fill a mule mug with crushed ice. Then, if you want that alcoholic edge... You pour in an ounce and a half of vodka. Otherwise, forget about it. You just throw in a half ounce of freshly squeezed lime juice and top that off with about four ounces of ginger kombucha. Stir it, garnish with a lime wedge.
2: Thanks, Tony. I'll be sure to check it out.
1: Man, this guy sounds interesting. Is he still here? Oh, yeah. He seems like a really cool dude. He's actually posted up down at the end of the bar. He is the one. Uh, he's holding a sod iron on my booze butt. Oh, shit. Excuse me, sir. Oh, shit. Chris,
2: is that who I think it is? I recognize this guy from DEF CON.
0: Yeah, I think so, man. I knew it was only a matter of time until he found his way here. Let's go hit him up.
1: Yeah, and do me a favor. Tell that guy not to damage my robotic bartender while you're down there, please. I'll see you all next round.
0: Joe Grand is a product designer, hardware hacker, former co-host of Discovery Channel's Prototype This and the founder of Grand Idea Studio. He specializes in creating, exploring, manipulating, and teaching about electronic devices. Also known as Kingpin, Joe was a member of the legendary hacker group Loft Heavy Industries, where he helped raise awareness of the hacker ethos and the importance of independent security vulnerability research. Joe, thanks for stopping by Barcode, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I'm also here with uh, Pete Clave, who's co-hosting with me today. What's going on, Pete?
2: Hey, what's going on?
0: So uh, Joe, first off, if you don't mind, you know I'm interested to hear about your background and tell me about, you know when did you first find your passion for engineering and hacking?
3: Sure. Well, I think even before then, seeing how we're on barcode and uh, you can't actually see it, but I have my Pentagon mug with cosmic cocoa, hot chocolate with a bunch of like crushed up, Mushroom powder <laughs> for for today because it's it's eleven in the morning here. I don't drink anyway, but even if I was gonna drink something like a you know crazy virgin cocktail, it's too early in the morning. Yeah, I guess it's cocktail time somewhere. Um, yeah, so so I got involved in um, electronics and hacking and, and really kind of discovered my passion when I was seven, which to me seems normal. And, you know, you'll talk to other people of my generation that's sort of like, yeah, maybe nine years old, 10, 11, they got a computer. Um, But apparently it's not that normal to be introduced that early back in in, the early 80s where computers just weren't as ubiquitous as they are now. If you had a computer, uh, you either had like a parent that needed one for work uh, or you were just lucky. Um, I ended up being lucky. I have an older brother and sister. So they were kind of messing around with the computer. It was an Atari 400. As a kid, I would just kind of watch them. We had a little computer room with a a table made out of an old wooden door, and you know, big TV and and the computer and a radiator. And I would sit up on the radiator and just watch my brother and sister play games. And mostly my brother. And then they kind of went their own direction, doing other things, and I just fell in love with the computer. You know, it was like I just loved how you could well play games on it. But I was a horrible gamer. But I liked how you could. Um, you know, connect over the modem to bulletin board systems and trade other games and then trade different types of information. So codes to get free phone calls and passwords to get into different systems. And we would just over time as things progressed, just kind of trade information. And it was sort of like, ended up being by the time I was 12 or 13, the thrill of collecting information and having access to systems and like kind of having this power, even though I wasn't abusing it just the knowledge of like, I knew how to get free phone calls, you know, get access to the credit bureaus, connect to elevator control systems, like all these random things that were connected to, to modems. So it wasn't even really internet connected things. It was just like you dial into a system. So I just loved that kind of underground thing. And, you know, at school, I was like the only one, um, that was into that sort of thing. So very much like, I'd grown up with a lot of the the same kids in school, so they kind of knew like, oh, Joey's a little bit, you know, weird, kind of nerd, whatever. (laughs) Um, So they kind of accepted it in a way because to them, that's just what I was. But it it was definitely not a normal thing. Um, And then at the same time, my brother was into electronics, so he would like fix radios for his friends and stuff. And he had this junk bin full of electronics. So besides using the computer, I would do chores and errands for him in exchange for being able to like pick a piece of electronics out of his junk bin. And then I started figuring out how do electronics work and I would read electronics magazines and build the projects and then start modifying those. So it really was just this love of of everything kind of technological and it was at such a young age and it just kind of stuck with me. And I knew from that point, like pretty much when I was seven, When I got into this stuff, I knew that that this was all I would ever do. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, how did you learn it as you went? Were you just self-taught? Did you do a lot of reading? Were there magazines out at the time that really walked you
3: through, you know, the architecture of what you're looking at? Yeah. So from a hacking side, no. Um, Well, not necessarily. So from the sort of like coding side, I had a bunch of books on like Atari basic and I would type in programs for magazines. There was analog electronics, uh, or sorry. An, um, yeah. Analog magazine, Antic magazine. Uh, so for the home computer world, there was a lot of uh, kind of reference material. So I would type in games and I would change the code and see what happens. Like, can I change the colors? Can I change the sound? And then I started creating my own games. Uh, and the books that that were sold, like these Atari books would, I just remember... They would show the different graphics modes kind of in a graph of like, you get 10 pixels by 20 pixels or whatever. And I would draw in on that page what I wanted the graphics to look like. And then I would you know, type in the data that represents that, that thing. So using essentially graph paper to, to graph stuff. And um, one of the first things I tried to make, well, actually, one of the first things I did make, the first thing was a, um, a program called Atari K9. Uh, and it was a drawing of K9 from Doctor Who which I think is even on my website as like a little video. And it auto-loaded this program and it drew a picture of what of canine, you know, the robot dog, and it blinked its nose and, and made some sounds. And I had programmed that and given it to my cousin on a floppy disk, a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. And like, I'll, I don't know how many years later, but he ended up, you know, cleaning up his room or whatever when he was older and he found it and gave it back to me. And then I ripped it onto, you know, a modern computer. Um, and then I tried to make one called, thir- um. Global thermonuclear war. So, based on war games, which came out in 1983 or 84, uh, that didn't get very far, but I had like a cool graphic screen. And and I did have one friend that lived up the hill, and his parents had a TRS 80 Model 2 and a 1200 baud Haynes, or sorry, Hayes, (laughs) Haynes underwear modem. No, a a Hayes Direct Connect modem, where I had a 300 baud acoustic coupler that you had to like plug into the, you plug your phone into the modem. This was a direct connection into the phone line, so his was four times faster. So we would do stuff at his house, and uh, he was more kind of software focused, and I was more the the hardware focused. Uh, So we we had a little company called B and G Software, um, for his last name and my last name being Grand. So it was really just a fun, you know, we were we were ten years old or something, and and just just messing around is all it was. And um, same with the electronics side, there was some electronics magazines I would buy every month at the electronics store, and build projects. And then like, you know, I would do stuff like the stun gun project and the, the, um, Sonic defender. So all these sort of what I would consider like kind of spy gadget or like, you know, uh, self-defense cool electronic things. Um, the first electronic board, the first circuit board I made was based on a text file. So when you're asking about reference material at that time with bulletin board systems, you had text files or G files, which were basically, you know, some kid wrote an article about like, you know, it's like the anarchist cookbook. Here's how you make a bomb. Here's how you mess with the telephone system. Here's how you do phone freaking or credit card fraud or, you know, whatever it is. So lots of different files on things. And um, so I would read all of those. And if there's any electronics ones, I would build them. So one that I found was what was called a ring busy device, which basically you took just a single resistor of a certain value and placed it in between the, the ring and the tip, the two lines of a, of a traditional POTS phone line. And that would still let you use the phone. But if somebody tried to call you, it would appear as a busy signal, which was pretty cool, which meant that you could still use your phone and do your war dialing and call all these different numbers on the, you know, out and most of the time a human's going to answer and get mad. Um, but if if for some, you know, in, in kind of later years when they had star 69 or they could call you back, it would just be a busy signal, which was which was awesome, which is um, what you wanted. Call. No, exactly. You didn't want them calling you back, and and I used it also um, in school. I would get in trouble a lot, and I would turn it on at night because normally the teachers would call in the evening when they know the parents are home. So I would turn that on at night so the teachers couldn't call my house, <laughs> and then I would flip it off. I had a little switch on it, um, so that was you know a great a great thing. And then my parents were like, "Oh, that's actually really cool. Let's turn it on during dinner so we don't get like spam calls." So they actually appreciated the fact that not only the teachers weren't calling, but then the, you know, we weren't getting random calls at night. Um, uh, so that, that's sort of like seeing how you can, how you can create stuff and affect the world like that stuck with me. And that was really like what just kind of sent me on the way.
2: Accolades for your high drinks. That's uh, yeah <laughs> approval from your parents. It's awesome.
3: <laughs> yeah. That, you know, and that's a, that's a big thing too. Back then, um, you know, it, I, I definitely had, I would say I had support from them, but it was more of a lack of non-support. So they were sort of like, oh, Joe, you know, I, I was called Joey back in the day. So, oh, Joey's up in the computer room. Right. And I would be there from the day, the second I got home at from school at 2 p.m., I'd be there until dinner time. I'd come down. Maybe after dinner, they would let me go back up. But it's sort of like, oh, he's in the computer room. So they let me use the computer, but they didn't know what I was doing. So it wasn't like they were full on supporting me like you know, be, they just weren't, they weren't stopping me from doing stuff.
0: Well, at we that up. time, it's almost like, you know, innocence too, right? You're not in the street causing yeah. trouble. And and at that time, you know, nobody really thought of the, the danger involved or the That's risk involved right. with it, that.
3: It was a lot different and it still was really like, you know, mostly just mischievous kids. And um, as I got older, you know, 13, 14, 15, I was causing trouble uh, in the streets you know in boston as as you will skateboarding and and all sorts of stuff just kind of being a general kind of punk ass you know kid um and then at the same time doing that stuff from a sort of technological perspective on the computer systems because as i got older you know then like hacker groups formed and i was part of one called renegade legion and then you had other groups in other areas you'd write text files and like you know kind of brag about who had the most text files and who had the coolest information Um, which is, which to me seems like a kind of typical teenage thing, right? Like as you get into the teenage years, you form these kind of cliques. Um, whether you're a a jock or a theater person or whatever, right? Um, at least back then, that's how that, that sort of grouping was. So I was, you know, in the computer world and then within the computer world, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to have a good reputation of releasing information. So it just was like, yeah, it was kind of like the wild west and it was, there was no ulterior motive. There was no like, at least for me, I wasn't in it to make money. I was just a kid. Like I just love doing the stuff, and I love building projects. I knew I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, I tell this story. Like you know, people always ask, like, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And when I was a kid, I'm like, "I'm going to be an engineer." And it was, and people are like, "What?" Like, <laughs> you know, usually it's like a firefighter or astronaut or something, and they're like, "Engineer." I'm like, "Yeah, I want to build stuff." So it just was a natural, you know, for me, just a natural thing. And it's amazing that. I still get to do essentially what I was doing as a kid um, and have and have a career out of it. Right. So it's really mind blowing. I do like to say too that I was a technological juvenile delinquent. That's kind of like the term I use to to let people realize like, you know, like you kind of think juvenile delinquent on the outside world. It's the same thing of like at some point I just started causing a little more mischief than I probably should have. Now you talked about the the hacker group. What was the name of it? That that one was called Renegade Legion. Renegade um, Legion. And if you go to textfiles.com, Jason Scott has a, a website that he he's archived essentially every text file that was on, you know, every bulletin board system back in the day. I guess I shouldn't say every, but almost every text file. So you can go and find Renegade Legion text files. And um, there was another sure. group I was involved in that was sort of a joke group based on that, which was Legion of Shram today. And um, then I joined one, um, which was more of the Boston area hackers, um, restricted data transmissions. Which ended up turning into the loft, which then ended up having more of a kind of you know public presence. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it was all about like forming relationships with hackers that you met online, and um, and then you know also for communication back then, it wasn't. Um, there may have been IRC sort of t- later on in, in the nineties, but in the eighties, there were some chat systems through TimeNet. Um, that I remember Parmaster was on there who, who is still around. Um, but we were mostly communicating over the phone. So we had, you know, we met on the bulletin board systems, but then we would have like these massive party lines and those generally like, you know, sometimes somebody would just have three-way calling on their house and you could call a couple people. Yeah. Or if you had multiple people with three-way calling, you'd call multiple people and have a, have a party line. Um, but we were doing mostly what were called Alliance teleconferences which were an AT&T service intended for like businesses to use to get all their employees to have a, a, a party talk, right, a conference call. Um, and this it turns out was like, I think Jason Scott said it was like $5 per minute per line. And we would essentially, I would ride my bike into Boston, um, use my lineman handset to clip on to like, open up a phone can in an alleyway behind an apartment building, clip, clip on to some random phone number, start the teleconference. So it would be billed to that person and then transfer control to a friend of mine. And then I would ride home, call into the teleconference and we would stay on these things for 10, 12 hours at a time. And there would be, you know, four people, eight people, 12 people. So if you imagine the cost, somebody gets that bill and they're like, oh my God, but we never really thought about that. This was, this was age 15, 14, 15, 16 is when I got into that. And Did you ever get caught? Well, not directly. I'll, I'll mention that in a second. And okay. what we thought about was like, we knew it was being billed to somebody, but, w- you know, it was like, we justified it as AT&T is a huge faceless corporation. They're charging too much information needs to be free. We should be allowed to talk all of these things. And, you know, we were, all, all of us were already um, using phone codes, uh, you know, corporate, uh calling cards and stuff to get free phone calls because we, you know, we wanted to communicate. And yes, the person who owned the phone line for, you know, maybe a couple of days freaks out, but they would just call AT&T and get a refund. Yeah. So we kind of justified it that way. Um, as far as getting caught, it's funny because every, every phone number that dials into those teleconferences gets logged. Um, so they knew who people were, and i did get a couple phone calls directly back from like an at&t alliance teleconference operator asking like was this phone number on the teleconference from this day and i have a recording of one of them they actually gave the name because they were trying to figure out like who was responsible for starting it and we all only knew each other by our hacker handles and um you know the the operator calls me and she's like do you recognize uh this phone number 313 blah 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 from michigan the name of real name, not hacker name. I'm I'm like, holy shit. Like they really know. So we, a couple people did get busted for running those conferences, but I think in general, I definitely got lucky. And a lot of other people just got lucky that they didn't pursue it. And I think it was probably one of those things of like, you know, you see some kids hanging out in the park and maybe like, maybe not anymore. I don't know, but you know, like spray painting something, right. It's like, you slap them on the wrist or you don't even, or whatever you kick them out of the park. Like you don't make a big deal out of it. I think AT and T was probably just accepted the fact that people were abusing it, and only went after the things that were like major, major, um, you know, uh, real crimes, losses, or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, crimes. Like, yeah, when it got up to some something expensive, or they did something, you know, illegal on the phone line, like we would call operators, we'd call like directory assistance in all these different States and then connect them all together on the phone lines. And they'd start talking (laughs) and they'd be like, you know, directory assistance, Boston, directory assistance, California, how can I help you? And they're all like, wait a second, how did we get linked? And, you know, we would call, we'd call girls that we had crushes on. Um, and we would call people we didn't like, we would call radio stations. Um, it was just a very, you know, it was like, Mostly, mostly boys. I we had a couple, a couple girls on there also, but it was mostly teenage boys. Just kind of having having a community is what it was, right? And it felt yeah. really cool, like to call in and talk to to Garfield in Michigan and and you know all these different people um, that you never met in person, but you still had this bond. And and you and eventually I met some of them, but um, you know it was just really cool. Jeff Moss, actually, the Dark Tangent, he had a um, a Defcon voice bridge that he made. And that was more West Coast focused, but you could call in, and it was a very similar thing. He was hosting it. You could call in and chat with other hackers, um, without meeting them. And like, so it was really amazing. And it sort of taught me that, you know, it, it, the sort of somebody is is somebody's worth or somebody should be based on their actions and what they say and what they do, not by what they look like, not by what religion they are, not by what sex they are or identify with or any of that stuff, right? It's like completely faceless and, and you, you, you learn about them in a much deeper level without having these preconceived notions. And as a kid, that's really powerful. And same thing with bulletin board systems. And we would have like, go to somebody, the the sysops house to do a game copying parties where you have this vision in your head of what these people look like because you're communicating with them all the time. And then you go and see them and it's like, I had no idea. It's like the New York times art. Um, there was a drawing once for the New York times. It was like on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And that was like in, you know, 1990 something. And like, that's, that's, that was what made that early community so special is it was just straight up the passion and the, the love of the mischief and doing things that other people weren't doing.
1: Do you think that
2: it's uh, a little bit different now compared to, uh, you know, when you were first dialing into, into the bold. Board systems those who wanted to connect and get online they had an interest in the technology and everything but today now internet gets so accessible that i think uh the ability to be anonymous and faceless in a lot of ways is much more easily abused and we see it a lot more is the loss of something like that or the presence of more people getting online kind of changing how you feel about that uh in terms of your, your accomplishment should still be anonymous or that's still
3: the best way to communicate online? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. So it's kind of hard to tell because every, every youth group or youth movement has like a different way of communicating and expressing themselves and stuff. Right. So if you look at like gen, the general population of kids now, you know, it was TikTok for a while and now it's something else. And even like the use of emojis, like I'm an old guy, I use the, you know, LOL emoji but that doesn't mean what I think it does to, to a kid. So it's hard for me to know, you know, if there are these kind of underground movements happening, what I tend to get a sense of, especially because of social media and this immediate gratification sort of thing is more people are focused on like building a brand around themselves. And it's like, look, mom, look how smart I am. I'm g- giving a talk. I'm on the news I'm this and that. And those are always great things but it shouldn't be the purpose, right? The purpose should be the passion. And then what comes out of that, if you have an opportunity to be on a stage like that, to share that passion, that's, what's important. It's not trying to see how many followers you have, blah, 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 blah. So, um, I, I I don't really know. I do think, um, you know back then because you had to have an interest in the technology or in at least access into the computer systems you had to be somewhat you had had to have somewhat of that mindset the technological mindset the curiosity of wanting to learn something in, in the in the nature of being able to be self-directed and self-taught um, i do get a lot of emails now of people like you know how do i become a hacker like you make it look fun which is cool that's the point but it's like how do i become a hacker and it's kind of like well I can't teach you to become a hacker. Like that's a mindset. You can use a tool, you can click, you can run a script, you can solder and desolder and do all these things and follow other people's directions, which is exactly how you should start, which is how I started. Um, but y- you have to, it's, a, it's, it's the mindset, not the process. So you have to really have that curiosity in the questioning of authority and, um, Or authoritarian figures, or authoritative figures, whether it's a a, you know teacher or a government or an institution or a process or whatever, just kind of that side. Which I don't, I I don't know if that exists because you know you have thirty thousand people at Def Con, and a lot of the a lot of the people coming in might just be interested in the industry. It is a career path now, so it's hard to tell. You know, like you'd probably be better off asking somebody who is coming up in it now how their view is of it. But um, you know, seeing the transition has been interesting. And the more people that we get in the industry, the better. I just hope that it maintains some of the, that real passion um, of the technology. Even as technologies change, you can still hack on anything, right? You can still be curious about anything. The resources are way greater. That just means there's more opportunities. Yeah, you know i think
2: you said before you're not dumpster diving anymore you can just look everything up on google
3: yeah you're. But yeah it's, except it's i mean there. i still you know i still look in in trash piles once in a while um <laughs> when i was in san francisco it was much more common you know people would actually i think now because of the pandemic it kind of there's a, this resurgence of um exchanging trash of like putting stuff on the street and then finding something else uh so that does still happen but yeah like you know when i was a kid and I would want to get passwords into, um, you know, the at and Cosmos database or, or, or ESS switch. Or if I wanted to get ESN min pairs to clone cell phones, I would just jump into a dumpster. I'd go to like the cellular one dumpster and, and put on, actually, I wasn't even wearing gloves at first. Then my parents yelled at me and I would start wearing gloves. Um, they're like, there could be needles in those bags. I'm like, whatever, but they're totally right. Like jumping in a dumpster is the most disgusting thing because you just don't know what else is in there besides the papers you want, but we'd you know o- open up the trash bags and grab the papers and dry them out because there'd be coffee on it or whatever, and get information and you know there is there is information online, but stuff like that would probably nowadays it would be like, okay, it's on some database that I need to trick somebody into giving me access to uh but the the physical dumpster diving was just part of the fun, man I mean it was like it was such a thrill and such a thing where people are like you go in dumpsters. And again, my parents knew, like, just be careful. Like, you know, don't, don't get poked with anything. And if my kids wanted to jump in a dumpster now, I'd be like, "Ah, okay, be careful. And actually we did a couple months ago, there was some construction going on and I climbed up the dumpster and looked in. So, but that's the mindset, right? It's like, that's sort of most people, my wife is like, that's gross. Why would you even do that? I'm like, there could be some treasure in there, like something cool. And that's just how I think. Cause I'm always just kind of on the lookout for stuff like that. But I don't, I don't think a lot of people are like that. I don't know how my wife would react if I start. Cause I, I, I don't jump you know, into, I've never really dumpster
2: dive. I've never done that, but just a, uh, an adult going into a dumpster without a purpose, but just to see what treasures in there. Uh, yeah.
3: And, <laughs> and like, you know, I, it's definitely my perception of it has definitely like, I'm definitely more aware of if I jump in there, what's going to be in there. And it might not be what I think, you know, there, there'd be like rats and stuff, but as a kid, I didn't really care. I just wanted, I wanted the thrown out cell phones, the broken cell phones. I wanted all the information. What came out of that is like, if there was a, if there was a rat, whatever, my adrenaline was so high, um, it didn't matter. And nowadays I'd be like, ew, like a rat, you know, I'd maybe reach in and get the bag or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Now you just go digital dumpster diving, you know, where you can identify a target on Facebook and just get your information there.
3: Yeah, it's a lot of the, 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 uh, the OSINT, o- OSINT, like you know, open source intelligence types of stuff. And, and that's actually when I, when I teach classes on hardware hacking, that's one of the things before even like hacking on a product is doing this whole information gathering phase, which yeah, used to be more physical and you'd go through the dumpsters. Um, but now it's like, you know, companies are, are posting um, not only like marketing data sheets and stuff to show off how smart they are in their product, which you can glean information from but they have administration manuals and technical manuals that are intended not for end users, but for the maintenance people or engineers that are implementing something into their system. So we can find all that information. Sometimes it just takes a little more digging, but yeah, I mean, that's the type of, there's so much stuff out there and maybe you don't use Google search. You use like Baidu for China and like, you know, depending on what you're trying to get. So yeah, it's, it's, there's a huge amount of information and lots of ways people can, can get it and, and then sort of follow whatever path they want to go on. Let me ask you this then.
0: If you were growing up in today's era with the same passion and level of curiosity for electronics and hardware hacking that you had as a kid, what damage could you really do? How do you think your mindset from then would have applied in today's world?
3: That's really funny. My wife, we were just talking about that the other day. <clears throat> and my kids are not really into that side sort of the hacker mischievous side like they're huge into gaming um and doing some like minecraft mods and stuff and they want to learn coding for that but yeah i mean thinking of like the mischievous stuff that i like to do um i would be all over the like the scada stuff um traffic infrastructure so you know traffic lights um any anything that controls a physical thing I think would be hilarious to mess with. And, you know, it's like with the colonial, you know, gas line kind of hack, which is in air quotes, you know, there's so many systems that are just like back in the day, there were systems connected to modems that you could just connect to completely insecure. There are so many systems now, especially this infrastructure related stuff that um, you can just find online and connect to. And the, the, the network security is so horrendously bad. It's like, what the fuck have we been doing for the past 25 years that hasn't translated, right? Right. It's like, what is going on? Um, Because the same concepts that I grew up doing are still valid. It's just a different technology. And the ones that I grew up doing, I found papers from the 60s that were the same thing, you know, sniffing signals, um, accessing unprotected computer system, all of this stuff um, is not new, you know? So, I think it would just be a little more elevated because more stuff is connected online. But I think I I always liked just messing with people. Right. So like I would turn off the, um, the, the automatic doors that go into our our local um, grocery store. So, you know, you walk through and and it's going to open for you. So I would go on the inside and turn the switch off and you'd see people walk into the door. (laughs) So it's like, I would basically be doing the equivalent of that with modern day technology. The problem, is because of the laws and because pe- the sort of notoriety and the bad meme of hackers and what, what real damage could be done, which I, I, would, I would never, uh, you know, hack into some, you know, medical equipment or things that would actually harm people because I'm just not like that. Um, but just the fact that the awareness is there, the law- lawmakers are there ready to pounce on you. Um, you know, like I did get arrested when I was a kid and luckily got let off. And and did not get prosecuted. The older people did, but I didn't, um, which really changed the direction of my life. But nowadays, I don't think I would be so lucky. Right? They'd want to make an example. It would be front page news. Uh, you know, fifteen year old kid hacks whatever. And and the problem is that stifles a lot of curiosity because there are kids that that want to mess around with this stuff and maybe are are a little worried about getting in trouble for doing it. And I feel like you need to really push the limits um not only to to understand what's going on but just to sort of see what the world is like and a lot of a lot of kids that maybe would be doing that stuff or kids that get in trouble for it and then they're prevented from using computers is completely the the wrong approach because those are the ones that are going to be the next generation to hopefully start securing systems and do all of that um but I would definitely like if I had kids that were into that stuff I'd be a lot more nervous of them like actually getting in real trouble so I think
2: like a lot of companies still offer like uh i mean they they offer now what they didn't have back then to get around the the high the more legal impact consequence of the actions uh they have like you know bug bounties and uh vulnerability disclosure programs is that valuable you think for for the 15 year old that wants to do this kind of stuff
3: and is afraid of the consequences or uh, yeah i think i think that's huge that's a great point um you know, a lot of the bug bounties, people complain like, "Oh, it's you know, you only get X amount of dollars, and that's that would be 100 hours of my work, blah blah blah." But yeah, for somebody looking to do it in a way that they're not going to get in trouble and they get to find some cool vulnerability and and disclose that in a safe way is awesome. And I think any company that has bug bounties um, or is even aware just of the fact that people want to hack their systems and and potentially contribute. Some fix or something like they should all be applauded because it really is something that that's important. And you know, um, like at the loft, we basically, which was our clubhouse, we would set up our own networks and kind of hack on stuff inside, so we weren't damaging anybody. Uh, and having these bug bounties is the same sort of thing. Like you could set up your own environment at home, in in your in your bedroom or your lab or whatever. But if you want to go after a real product, you can do that. And, and you know, as long as you follow the guidelines of these companies. And I think that that's great for everybody. Right. And, and it's like, and if, you know, if you're a teenager and you, you can score a bug bounty, like that's huge from a, from a bragging perspective, right. You get to tell your friends, uh, you get some money out of it. And then because it is actually a career path now, like that just gives you some more cred that you can use later on. Um, I just, you know, but like I mentioned, I just, I just hope that the, the fame and the money is not the driving factor it's the passion and the desire to educate people and educate these companies and make things more secure and all the other stuff comes that comes out of it is is like the bonus right it's like the frosting
2: yeah i i I hope that there's a comparison between what that is what it exists today for the people who are participating in those programs and what you had uh you know you talked about your collection of text files that you would aggregate And it's kind of like, I I see a lot of similarities there. And I hope that still exists for those that have that mindset.
3: Yeah. And then, you know, going back to all of the different resources, like somebody can now look up and see what all existing bugs are for a product or existing exploits or CVE lists or whatever, and then learn from those and replicate those and try them on other products. And it's something that I've, I've started really realizing recently. Like I always say, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like all of us are, are. Doing things probably that have been done before, maybe a little bit differently, and then we share that and somebody else does it, but none of us are like the the beginning like we're all building on each other, and that's how this community is growing and becoming so great. and there's nothing wrong with replicating somebody's work and learning from it. and like a great example of that is just currently I'm working on a project that isn't public yet, but um, we're filming a pilot uh, in a couple of weeks around it and For part of this work, for me to kind of learn this particular technique, which I hadn't really been super familiar with doing some fault injection and and stuff, voltage glitching, I set out to replicate a bunch of existing work that was out there. And I kind of had this imposter syndrome of like, well, I'm lame because I'm copying this work. But by doing that, you learn all these different things about it. And then what ended up happening is some of the work I wasn't able to replicate but I stumbled upon a different method that did work. And that's when I realized like, yes, this is, that's the natural progression, right? And now I have so much more knowledge of what's going on because I was able to learn from other people and then add my own flavor to it. And now there's another bit that I can you know, publicly release and share with other people that they can go use. So it was like that moment of like, yes, you know, it's okay to, to, Copy again in quotes like someone someone's effort, and then build on that as long as you're not just copying it and taking credit for what already existed, right, but it's like putting something new into the world, and it's okay to use what already is out there first. You don't have to start from scratch and recreate the wheel every single time. I would look at it as progression, mm-hmm. you know progressing in what you
0: know as a as an engineer and then maybe applying what you know and your expertise to that secondary thing that you may be yeah. you know have to I mean learn. it's exactly
3: it's all learning and if you think about like the standard scientific process um you know the scientific papers come out with the intent of of people being able to replicate their work and peer review and all of this stuff and it's such an important piece at least for me being able to do it and learn from it um some people learn you know better by reading a report and then doing something with it but it's such a yeah i mean it, it's such a huge part and um It's something that really people should be kind of applauded for or or, um, kind of pushed towards that of like it's okay like don't feel like you have to always have some brand new you know o-day whatever like nobody's ever going to know everything and I, i i'm lucky in the fact that i know that like my knowledge is limited to electronics and hardware and you know that's kind of it but with the security world there's so much going on there's no way like i could probably learn web hacking network stuff but that's not my passion right um so but if you find something that is your passion it's you're you're never going to know everything even if you've been doing this for a long time so there's always something new to learn um and and that's something to keep in mind too is like if you have that hacker mindset and that curiosity like you always want to learn and, yeah. and and i've always wanted to learn this particular technique but never really had a reason and Kind of just kept pushing it off because I knew it was technically complex. And then starting to do it, it's like, Wow, and I kind of distill it in my brain and 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 process it. And now it's like, okay, I get it. And it you know I, I've learned so many things about myself and the process as I'm doing it, because uh, it was the big roller coaster ride of you know trial and error and failure and success and then failure again, and like, what is going on? Um, And that's the learning process, right? And and I came out of it the other end, like much, much more excited about that technology, much more um, confident in, in my, my approach, which sometimes is very rigid. Uh, So I had to kind of change that a little bit to accept the fact that things are going to fail more often. Um, And that's part of it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just hacking, I think should be equated to like a constant learning process. And it's okay to learn new things and to not know, right. Or to have somebody that maybe knows something more. Whereas as a kid with the hacker groups, it was always like, we want to be the best, even though that's, you know, clearly never possible. Um, but that's my old age speaking of like, yeah, it's great to learn from other things because that's how I did it originally. And that helped me. Uh, and like, yeah, well, if you mentally think you're going to hit a wall, that's not good. You know yeah. what I mean? And, you know, but I really had that case of imposter syndrome of like, do I deserve to do this? Like, do I have the skill to do this? And I was kind of questioning my own kind of life of like, what am I doing with my, you know, life of hacking? And, and that's something that, you know, the whole mental health aspect of the, of the hacker community of the InfoSec cyber security community is huge. So that was something where it's like, okay, the imposter syndrome is just like my mind telling me something that I'm going to ignore and I'm going to try this process and I'm going to build on this work and see what happens and like, just push that to the side. And, and it's, uh, and, and and it worked out. So yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah, just, it's okay to keep learning and you're never going to know everything. And, and I'm definitely okay with that. That's an awesome perspective.
0: You know, I want to know what your smart home consists of. What does that look like?
3: That's going to be an easy answer. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, My smart home consists of an alarm system and that's it. (laughs) I was not expecting uh, that. No, I'm sort of a, uh, technology curmudgeon. It's really interesting. Like I'm fascinated with a lot of technology, right. But more on the, on the tearing it apart and manipulating it side and screwing with it side. Um, but I'm very averse to having cameras in the house microphones in the house, you know, tracking devices in the house, because I'm still a hacker. I'm a paranoid hacker. I grew up in a world where, you know, that was having a a, a camera in your house was like having Hal staring at you all the time. And it, 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 you know, from 2001, like it just was too, it was surreal. It was like 1984. And, you know, reading 2600 magazine, Emmanuel Goldstein got his name from 1984, the publisher of the editor of the magazine like that that was one of our kind of bibles every month we would get that or every quarter um so just the thought of of implementing a lot of technology in the house just doesn't appeal to me and so we we don't have any smart devices um uh, as far as network connected like nothing nothing outward facing that, that we know of <laughs> if anybody finds something please tell me uh and yeah we just keep it very simple Um, which is something that I pass on to my kids as well because they're getting up on the age where they want to be online and social media and this and that and it's like it you know if you're not contributing online into social media it's almost like you don't exist especially in your social circle and stuff um and even me like I don't contribute I don't I don't contribute to conversations and stuff online a lot of times mostly because it stresses me out and I would rather just focus on doing what I enjoy but for a younger generation like if if they're not online they basically are not there. So there's that balance of like how can you do social social stuff and network, you know, online presence without it affecting your mental health, your everything, like and to still let you do what you love to do. So we're starting to get into those conversations. And I think that the, the IoT kind of network connected smart devices stuff all falls into that. It's like Bruce Schneier has his book, Data in Goliath, which is older now. He has some other books too, but it's, you know, we know what these large corporations are doing with our browsing habits, with our data, you know, all these services, they're not doing this as favors to us, right? And we know that at least as hackers, we know that. Every time I do a Google search, it's like, all right, now that's in some log. So, you know, I use the Tor browser, I use VPNs. um, And it's just, to me, it's like a very slimy, dirty place where every technology has an ulterior motive. And to to have a device in my house that I go, hey, Alexa, you know, uh, who is Joe Grand? (laughs) Like, that's weird. I don't want it listening to me. Even if a company is like, but it only listens when you wake it up with, hey, Alexa, like that's bullshit. It has to listen enough for you to say, "Hey, Alexa in the first place." And you always have to have this cynical mindset of like, why would you put trust in a giant corporation that doesn't have your personal interest in mind? And that comes from the hacker, you know mindset and in, in my experience in the loft and kind of deal starting to deal with larger corporations. So yeah, I mean, I'm definitely technology minimalist um, using only what's necessary and keeping it as clean and simple as possible that I can still get my work done, but do it in a way that is comfortable and, you know, not disruptive or distractive or putting my family at risk by being spied on and stuff.
1: If
2: you were to let it in, what would it take? And no, like, nothing, nothing at all. No, it's if, a, if, if, my- <laughs> if you own it, like if, if it was your own infrastructure, like open source program, you knew the code, you had the, you ran the, the service yourself.
3: No, wow. there's, t- okay. there's too many, there's too many issues from, even if it's open source, there's just too many potential security issues. There's too much potential of misuse of, of the data or the information. And, you know, some people might be like, well, he's stupid. He's crazy. What the technology is so assistive and helpful. And I think about it as like when we were trying to get my grandmother to use a microwave where she was like, you know, she had the stove in the oven and she's like, no way. I'm not using a microwave. But then then she actually got a microwave and she's like, oh, this is cool. I can like reheat my food. So I may be right in between there, but but I would never. I I would just never implement that stuff. Like it, it just doesn't interest me. And I just know too much about how these companies are designing the products and what they're doing with stuff. You know, it's like, I feel like once you, when you do a Google search and then you see an advertisement for something similar, come up on your TV, like a completely unrelated device, it should be like a pretty serious wake up call. And like, you know, we're watching TV and like, I can see what my wife is searching based on the ads that come up. And what's also weird is like, there are a lot of like, you know, medications and stuff for middle-aged people, which is also terrifying because technically I'm a middle-aged person. <laughs> um, so all of that stuff is just like, it's, it's like sickening, right? I mean, yeah. to me, it's it's disgusting. And, and I never trusted big corporations. And, and I, I wouldn't change that now, even if somebody was like, it's totally secure or like, take a lot of money to put this stuff in your house. Like, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Dependence on cloud really changes a lot of things too. Like,
2: and your yeah. your the Wired video is great. Uh, I mean, if you yeah. haven't watched it, go go check that out. Wired did a video with Joe how he makes a composite finds the nearest pizza place. But <laughs> yeah. in that video, you talk about how you have to integrate this with 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 a search engine API to that tell right. you where the pizza place is.
3: Yeah, and, and I had never it, used the Google, never used the Google API before, um, and you know don't use a lot of Google services anyway. So that was a new thing of sort of building a device that did track you to find out where your location was. So it could send it to Google to find out where the nearest pizza place was. Um, but that was like a hobbyist sort of project that people can learn from and build from to do stuff. Like I, I, w- I couldn't in good conscience build anything like that for, you know, sale or something like that, like to commercialize it. Like that's, that no, but like to show people, here's how a GPS works and here's how the Google API works or here's how, um, you know, mustache templates work for JSON format to send to whatever internet service, like that's all stuff that I learned along the way. But yeah, I mean, you know, that is, it's still, it's a cool looking pizza compass, but it's still, if you think about it, like a kind of creepy, you know, portable tracking device with blinky lights on it. (laughs) (laughs) And that software is open source. So technically I could
0: adjust that query to point me to beer if I wanted to.
3: You could definitely point it to beer. You could point it to everything, anything that you want, or you could hard code coordinates if you didn't want you know, to send your your coordinates outward, it would just c- compute the math based on your GPS coordinates and then your hard coded coordinates all locally on the device. Uh, so there's a lot you can do with it. And yeah, I mean, the, again, that whole thing was just to to show the engineering process or the development process of build, going from prototype to production. And um, Wired had just contacted me and they were interested in like, can we film you doing something? And i'm like well i had this idea and they're like great let's do it like how long is it gonna take and i'm like i don't know a couple weeks they're like okay you have three weeks like you know we'll film you the first day with a camera crew and then we'll have you film everything else and then the final day we'll have the camera crew come back um and that's what we did and it was fun and that's you know one of what's funny is like that's just one of a million things i've worked on and it's one of the most kind of useless and kind of silly and cheesy kind of things um, but at the same time, because it's entertaining and they did a great job making the video and make making a story out of it, people can learn from that and then either use my, the stuff that I've released online to build from or just be like, oh, engineering's awesome. Like, I can, I want to build something completely different. But now I understand a little bit about the process to do it. Yeah. So my bartender here just yelled out last call.
0: You got time for one more? Uh, sure. Let's Let's do it. All right if you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be? And what would your signature drink be called?
3: Mm. So a name that, well, a, a drink that popped into my head. Um, uh, I would, I would call the drink, the solder smash. And <laughs> that, that was, um, I, I just did a live hardware hacking um challenge for Colonel con a couple of weeks ago and it was all online and, and they presented me with a hardware challenge to, you know, solder and hack on. And, um, as part of that sort of lead up, they had asked me what would, if I was a superhero, what would my superpower be? And I said, solder smash. And I think that's an awesome name for a drink also. Oh um, yeah. So that's why I'm going to reuse it as that, um, for the actual name of a, of a bar. Oh, Dev Null just popped into my head. So I think I'll just have to go with that. <laughs> I love that. So go to Dev Null and get your your solder smash. That almost sounds real. <laughs> Copyright 2021 Joe Grand. <laughs> <laughs> and is that going to be in Portland? <laughs> yeah, that would be in Portland. Okay. All and it would well, have to be like, you know, microbrew and handmade kombucha and, you know, um, artisanal pickles and tater tots. All that stuff.
0: Nice. We just uh made a kombucha mule and Ooh. um it's specifically for you. We added it on the uh the drink menu. Oh, thank your, you. Your drink. Yeah, it. absolutely. What'd you name it? We named it the uh,
3: the grand mule. Nice. I'm I'm going there right now. I'm gonna make it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice, man. Well, Joe, thanks for your time today. I personally learned a lot and I'm sure my audience did as well. Where can our listeners go to find you online and, and connect with you online?
3: yeah so um my website is grandideastudio.com uh i am updating the website so that that will be a little easier to navigate stuff later um sometimes i post stuff on there without advertising about it uh so that's kind of like the archive of everything um youtube is it's you just search for joe grand or kingpin empire um it will go to my youtube channel uh I, i post once in a while like i'm not a YouTuber. Um, yeah. but if there's something worth making a video about, I'll do it. So that goes up there and I'll link to, I, I reference other videos from there that like the wired one is on their, on their channel, but I link to that. And then Twitter is for more of like the day to day or week to week. Cause I don't use it very often. That's um, just at Joe grand and uh, yeah. So that's kind of, you know, I, I, I say something publicly when there's something worth saying, otherwise you don't hear from me <laughs> and I appreciate the opportunity too. this is awesome. It's, you know, nice to, to hear some questions. Uh, some different questions and stuff, and it was fun. Thanks, Joe. Yo. You take care, man. Be safe. All right, this has been a pleasure, yes. Joe. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye.
0: Barcode patrons, if you like this episode and would like to support the podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and visit our Patreon site, Patreon dot com slash barcode podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, check out the barcode podcast dot com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at
1: Barcodepodcast.com.